I think uh, I think probably for for all of us who are uh, who are adults and and maybe even some teenagers um, can relate to this. Uh, when we think about childhood growing up, uh, there's probably there's probably uh, certain pictures and and memories that just immediately come to mind for us. Um, things that that we'll probably remember uh, for the rest of our lives. They might be kind of noteworthy, significant events that happened in childhood, or, or, or we may just think of common everyday occurrences that just left quite a firm imprint on our minds. For example, one thing, one thing I remember about uh, growing up is, is coming downstairs in the morning uh, before school and, and seeing my dad in the, in the living room in the gliding chair, which I think is the most comfortable chair in the house personally, and, and he did too apparently, but, but seeing him there reading the morning newspaper when I would come down in the morning. Um, anyone else have a memory like something like that? You know, seeing, seeing a mom or a dad or somebody reading the morning newspaper it doesn't happen much anymore. Of course, newspapers are still around, Right, uh, but but for so long in our culture, the the morning newspaper was kind of the the staple primary source of of information, at least national and, and world news. Um, and, and of course, they still exist. Newspapers exist, but they don't they don't hold quite that place in the culture that that they once did. And if I'm honest, I. There's part of me that that uh, longs to go back to those days when I'd come downstairs and I would see Dad reading the morning newspaper in the morning. Um, not so much because times were simpler as a child, although many of us may hold that sentiment that those times were simpler, but, but because it, it was a time, at least by my perception, it, it was a time where you could read the newspaper and and have faith that for the most part things were being fairly reported to you. Um, I'm sure there's always a bit of bias that would that would make its way into news reporting, but I think for the most part that type of thing at that time was uh, was something that journalists were taught to fight against to to leave bias out as much as possible. Right now. I really don't want to start a debate today about the level of personal bias or, or organizational bias in, in news reporting, but I think it's at least safe to say that there's more of that in today's reporting than there was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and because of that, I, 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 I feel like it's more difficult to, to have the same level of trust that, that once existed. And, and, and maybe you feel some of the same weariness that I do uh, when it comes to all the work that can be required to find news reporting that is, that is done in a fair way. And again, I, I'm making a generalization. I, I know there are journalists that, that do report in a fair way as much as possible. So I don't want to say that there aren't any, but I'm just making a general statement. Now, in some ways, I, I, I think the situation in which we find ourselves might be similar to, to the church uh, in Corinth, what they experienced in the first century as they sought to discern the information that they were hearing. So, so I want us to, to try and put ourselves, imagine ourselves in that setting for a moment. 
So imagine that, that we are a church in first century Corinth. Imagine that our church is visited by a traveling speaker who has come into town. We don't really know who this guy is. He showed up. He's got some letters of recommendation from, from other people. But, but he starts speaking at our church. His oratory skills are great. They're just superb. I mean, when he speaks, his speaking is captivating. Um, honestly, it's convincing when he speaks to us. Uh, he, he is teaching us things about Jesus that we had never heard before. I mean, this is incredible stuff that he is revealing to us. And remember, this is a time where we can't just open our Bibles. This is first century Corinth. Maybe we have some familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, but other than that, our knowledge of Jesus, our knowledge of truth is what has been shared with us, what has been communicated to us by, by people who have brought it to us. So we can't just open up our Bible and say, okay, what's this guy talking about? If we're honest with ourselves in that setting, we probably want to believe what this traveling teacher is saying to us because it sounds so wonderful. The, 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 what he's saying, the promises that he's making, scratch us right where we itch. The question is, how can we know whether or not to accept his teaching? In that setting especially, how can we know whether or not to accept what he is speaking to us? That's where the church found themselves, the church in Corinth in the first century. They were faced with that situation. And in that situation, they did accept this new teaching that was brought to them. The problem was, as we started to explore last week in chapter 10, uh, that new teaching was not in line with truth. So not only did this new teaching clash with, the, with Paul's teaching that he had brought to the church, but these teachers clashed with Paul himself. So we're going to see this. Last week, uh, Paul responded by, by playing defense. Paul defended his own character last week in chapter 10. As we transition to chapter 11 this week, Paul goes on the offensive against this false teaching that's being proclaimed by these false teachers. So look with me this morning and let's see, let's see what Paul has to say about it in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, starting in verse 1, we'll read uh, down through, first, through verse 6 to begin. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. What I think is, is clear in this passage, and, and, and Paul says it outright, 
he, he says that he has, he has this divine jealousy for the church body. I think that's a great phrase. He has divine jealousy for the church body. It's not, not a jealousy that, that arises from the fact that these other teachers have come into the town and, and the church is admiring them more than they admire Paul. It has nothing to do with selfish motives, what Paul is feeling. He says it is, it is a divine jealousy that Paul feels. And he equates it to that of a father for his daughter. He says, that's how I feel about you as a church body. It is a, a, a divine jealousy that has the interest of the church in mind. So when it came to the church in Corinth, Paul had proclaimed the gospel to them. He had planted the church in that city. They very much were like his spiritual daughter. His desire was to present this daughter to Christ as a pure bride. But others had come to town. Others had uh, introduced themselves to the church, and they were attempting to lead the church astray. And Paul takes it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He says it, it's, it's like that, that first event there in the Garden of Eden with Satan and Eve. Satan came, and Satan uh, you know, seduced her, deceived her, uh, convinced her to turn her worship away from God. Satan proclaimed something to her which was not the truth. He twisted God's words that had been spoken. These false apostles that have uh, come to Corinth were doing the same thing, according to Paul. They were, they were teaching a different Jesus. They were teaching a different spirit. They were teaching a different gospel. And, and because of that, Paul is, is rightly jealous. He's divinely jealous, he says, for them. If, if, these, uh, if these teachers that came to town were teaching the true gospel, Paul would have been fine with that. He would have been fine with that. And, and we, again, we can remember back to 1 Corinthians where Paul said, you know, you know, me, Peter, Apollos, we're all on the same team. One plants, another waters. We're all presenting the true gospel to you. But because these teachers were not proclaiming the true gospel, because they were proclaiming a false gospel, Paul went on the offensive and, and he drew attention to what they were doing. He, he's pointing it out to the church body here. These false apostles may have uh, viewed Paul as an inferior speaker when compared to them, but uh, Paul's knowledge of the truth blows these false apostles out of the water. And, and he says it, he says as much here. The church had been recipients of that knowledge. They had received the gospel from Paul when he came to town. They had, they had received the good news. They'd been blessed by the truth that Paul had proclaimed. And now, in the face of falsehood, they needed to hold fast to that. They needed to hold fast to that truth, not abandon it for this new teaching that was being brought to them. And so, you know, again, as we think about the situation in first century Corinth, there's, there's something good for us to remember in that for our time today as well, to be mindful in our setting. And, and we'll actually end this morning by, by highlighting a couple of common false uh, gospels that, that, uh, that we may encounter today. So we'll get to that at the very end this morning, but but Paul points out to them, hey, this is a false gospel that these guys are presenting to you, and you're putting up with it. You're, you're turning towards it. And, and then to, 
to support the reality that Paul that Paul's gospel was the true gospel, he, he reminds them of how it was delivered to them. He reminds them of the humility that was present when he brought them this message, the humility that Paul continued to show. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who, who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burden, burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And again, that's the region of Corinth there. And why? Because I, do, because I do not love you, God knows I do. So, so one thing to know about those traveling teachers and speakers, they made their living in that way. They made their living. They expected to be compensated when they came to town and people would listen to them speak. They expected to be paid for that. And in fact, the, the common assumption in that culture was that the, the, the more eloquent their speaking the higher the fee should be, the more they ought to be paid based on their oratory skills. And, you know, I, I think we probably think along those lines today, right? If you would think of the big name speakers, you know, think of past presidents and how much they can command for giving one single speech. It's incredible sometimes. Even if we're in the store looking at, looking at items, you see two items, they look basically the same, they have the same function, but one costs twice as much as the other. The assumption is that the more expensive one is better quality, right? We, we hope it is, <laughs> anyway. But that, that's our first assumption, that, that that more expensive one is more expensive for a reason, because it's higher quality. Well, th these false teachers were making the same assumption about Paul. You know, they came to Corinth, and Paul didn't charge you anything for that message. You know why? Because it's worthless. He knows he can. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's essentially the point that they were making. Paul can't charge you. His message isn't worth anything. If it was, he would charge you. He would require a fee. What Paul says here is, says, no, no, no. He humbly refrained from asking for money from the church in Corinth because he loved them and he wanted what was best for them. That's, that's what he's pointing out here. He didn't, he didn't function that way in order to demean the church or elevate himself. It was quite the opposite. He, he humbled himself and he refused to burden the new church because he loved them. He sought to build them up. And, and in addition, he wanted to prove the truth of Christ, the, the, the truth of the gospel message by living it out, especially in ways that were against cultural norms. So Paul's example really stood in stark contrast to those false teachers who fully expected to be paid for the message that they brought. And I think in many ways, his example to the believers was proof. It was proof that the truth of the message was, was worth their devotion. If two speakers came to town and presented a message to us, one demanded to be paid and the other did it out of his goodwill, which one do you think has purer motives? Right, I mean, whether we are right or wrong, we would assume that it's the one who did it out of his own goodwill. 
And this is what Paul's saying here. You can trust my message because I brought it to you freely out of my love for you. By looking at the motives of the teachers in addition to the words that they were saying, the believers could discern whether it was truth or lies that was being proclaimed to them. And then finally, in the, in the last section, um, Paul does not pull any punches here. <laughs> he continues con- confronting these false apostles and, uh, well, let's just read it. Let's see what he says. Verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, Paul, I say he doesn't pull any punches here. Paul, I, I mean, he, Paul did not want to be lumped in with these guys in any way, shape, or form. You know, he's saying, if you think we're working on the same mission here, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. Their, their work was not the same as Paul's work. They worked to earn money. They worked to earn influence and esteem. Paul worked, as he said, to present the church as a pure bride to Christ. These false apostles, they worked for their own benefit. Paul worked for the church's benefit. There's a, there's a big difference there. And then beyond that, Paul goes on and he, he equates these false, God, uh, false apostles with Satan himself. He calls them servants of Satan. They disguised themselves. They resorted to deception just like Satan does. Man, (laughs) Paul, you can see why he's going on the offensive here. He's calling them out before the church. You know, if 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 we think that Satan primarily attempts to lead us astray by presenting bold faced lies to us, we're mistaken in that. Uh, Satan's scheme is to wrap up a lie in a half-truth and present it to us as the full truth. That's the primary method that Satan will use. His native language is lying, and, and, you know, he's good at it. We ought to admit, he's good at it. We have to be ready for that. Paul uh, uh, Peter writes in his letter, we have to be self-controlled and alert when it comes to resisting Satan, resisting those, those lies that he gives to us wrapped up in half-truths. I think, I think the alertness that Peter talks about comes as we observe the times, if we, as we observe our own tendencies, our own weaknesses. And I think the self-control that, that Peter talks about is, you know, that, that's the fruit of the Spirit. The self-control comes through the work of, of uh, God within us, God's truth dwelling within us. And then as those things happen, as we're self-controlled and alert, we're able to resist that deception of Satan and and his servants who who seek to deceive as well. I I wish that that everything put before us could be uh, implicitly trusted in its entirety. I I wish that every, every idea we encountered about God and his character and his actions could be accepted as truth. 
But just like the church in Corinth couldn't do that, we can't do that either. We, we have to be self-controlled and alert so that we don't readily put up with false gospels like the church in Corinth was, was doing. And so to that end, I said, you know, I want to finish this morning talking about two different false teachings that, uh, that we encounter in our world today. Um, one of these has been around for, for a very long time. Um, the other, I would say, is relatively new. So we've got something old and something new to look at this morning. Um, it's not a wedding, so I don't have anything borrowed or blue, but, but we do have something old, something new. So... So something old that Satan uses to, uh, to lead us astray is the prosperity gospel. Now, now the prosperity gospel is a, is a, I would say it's an umbrella concept that, that can show itself in many, many different ways. So, uh, of course, the prosperity gospel includes um, uh, the promises some Bible teachers will make that that if you simply obey God's teachings and pray in just the right way, then, then God will bless you financially. Um, you know, there's a handful of verses in Scripture that, that are pulled out and used to argue that viewpoint. Um, but, but when you begin to dig into the context of those verses, it's easy to see that those verses are taken firmly out of their contexts and used to say something other than what the original intention was. And, 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 and there, you know, th- this is something for us to consider anytime we hear any teaching from the Bible. You know, things I say as well. The, the, the questions that we ought to ask are, is that teaching staying true to the context of Scripture? I think that this is one of the great reasons to, to go through books in the Bible because you, you have to keep things in context. We're, we're forced to as we walk through and wrestle not just with one statement but with entire ideas that are being presented to us. So we need to ask that question anytime we hear a teaching. Is it staying true to the context of Scripture? Or are these words from the Bible being twisted and, and manipulated to mean something other than what the writer originally intended? Those are good questions that we ought to be asking. So, so promises of financial wealth and prosperity, they, they fall into that category of out-of-context uh, teaching. But the prosperity gospel encompasses more than just uh, financial promises. Um, and, you know, you'll hear it called the health and wealth gospel sometimes. So health, sometimes it's, it's physical health that is promised. Sometimes what is promised is, is protection from all physical ailments. If a person just prays correctly and does the right things, then, then God will heal any disease that they have, remove any pain that they have. Um, it's interesting, we're going to get to chapter 12 here in a couple weeks, uh, where Paul writes about that infamous thorn in the flesh. Um, many Bible scholars think that was a physical ailment that Paul dealt with. Um, so apparently the prosperity gospel promises didn't apply to Paul, or he was doing something wrong, because God didn't take away that thorn in the flesh. It, it remained. I mean, you could, we'll get there in chapter 12, but man, Paul wrestled with that. The prosperity gospel would say, well, just... Just, you know, you're doing something wrong. If you would do it right, then God would remove that. That's prosperity gospel. Um, another form 
of prosperity gospel. And I think this one is, has gained more and more traction in our American context recently, um, is the promise of complete and total freedom. Some will teach that my God-given right is complete and total freedom. And again, there's, there's verses that can be taken out of context. Galatians 5.1, for example, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So when a, when a national or state or local government or, or even a business or institution requires us to do something that we don't want to do, there's Bible teachers who will tell us, in Christ, you're free. You don't have to listen to any of them. You know, I answer to God and God alone, and that's it. You know, period, end of story. It's a false teaching. It's, it's, a, it's a false gospel because the freedom for which Christ has set us free doesn't pertain to governments or businesses or institutions. Uh, when Jesus says the Son sets us free, he's talking about freedom from sin. When, when Paul writes about Christ setting us free and not submitting again to a yoke of slavery, he's talking about the old covenant law. He, he's talking about circumcision there. So Jesus did not die on the cross so that I don't have to listen to any authority that's been placed over me. You know, Paul writes in Romans 13, we're, we're subject to governing authorities. Paul writes that those authorities have been instituted by God. He writes that we should expect to incur judgment when we improperly resist authorities that have been instituted by God and placed over us. Now, of course, there are times when humans within government overstep their governmental authority. They overstep even their God-given areas of authority. There, there's clear examples of that back throughout history. Uh, man, we've had lots of discussion lately in these last six months about what does that look like in terms of COVID, right? I think those are discussions that we ought to be having. Uh, we ought to be having them as we prayerfully discern how to move forward in the current climate that we find ourselves. But any gospel message that, com that, that proclaims complete autonomy and the freedom to live however I want to live is not the true gospel message. It, it, it just isn't. We, we have to be alert to those false teachings. And, and again, by, by being, being self-controlled and alert, dwelling in God's presence, immersing ourselves in God's word to us. Prosperity gospel has been around for a long time. I mean, that, that in essence, that's a lot of what these uh, false apostles in Corinth were proclaiming. It might be repackaged in our day in different ways, but it's still there. We still have to be alert and ready for that. Something new that, that has come onto the scene really in the last three years, uh, but has, has increased a lot in popularity in 2020, is uh, QAnon. I don't know if you've heard that before or not. QAnon, if, if you're unfamiliar, here's, here's my very short summary, at least as I understand it. QAnon is, is a group of followers who adhere to a group of theories uh, promoted and supported by, by an anonymous online figure named Q. It's a great way to remember it. Q is anonymous, QAnon. The thrust of these theories promoted by Q 
is that our nation and indeed our, our, our entire world is being controlled by evil Satan-worshipping people who, who hold on to their power and control through, through coercion, manipulation, sex trafficking, and, and all these other immoral activities. And, and so this Q figure is believed by followers, many followers, to be a, a high-ranking official in the U.S. military privy to, to all sorts of um, top secret information. Some would even say that President Trump himself is Q and that, and that, that this is his tactic to overthrow the deep state, as, as it's called. Now, the reason I bring that up in conjunction with false gospels is, is that it is nearly impossible to discuss these QAnon theories without wading into theological waters. I don't think you can do it. And there's, there's different reasons for that. These theories play upon uh, a person's discontentment with our government um, and also uh, a disgust, a, a rightful disgust at sinful things in our world, like child trafficking, among others. These theories seek to make sense of everything evil that is going on in our world and unite people together to fight against it. Some theories even draw from, uh, from the book of Revelation and, and end times and, and seek to connect current events uh, in ima with images written in, uh, in Scripture. The theories themselves are often filled with religious terms and religious ideas. The problem is that the theories are unsubstantiated. Uh, you know, could they be true? Well, I, I, it's possible. I mean, that's what, I guess that's what can make this whole thing so tricky at times. Have the theories been proven true? No, they, they've not been in the slightest. And we need to be aware of this because in our social media saturated culture, it is incredible how pervasive some of these theories have become. I've seen them. I've seen them on, on people's Facebook pages, and I only later came to realize, wow, that, that, that has its origin in QAnon, that, that theory or, or piece of, of supposed news or whatever it was. And odds, I mean, odds are, if you spent any time on social media, you've seen them too, whether you realized it or not. It can be pretty tricky. We definitely live in a, in a fallen, sin-filled world. There's no question about that. And, and things like sex trafficking and drug usage are certainly marks of this reality. And it, it should disgust us. And we should stand against those outcomes of sin. And, and we ought to long for the day when, when that will all be eradicated from, from our reality. But, but we cannot put our hope in this anonymous cue figure to solve all of our problems. We, we cannot put our hope in ourselves to solve our problems. That, that's another kind of staple of QAnon, the motto where we go one, we go all. Right? In other words, the more informed we are, the more united we stand, the more victorious we'll be. Putting our hope in ourselves is a dangerous false gospel, but that is what is at the heart of QAnon, that we just have to join together and we will be victorious. Our hope has to be built upon Jesus and nothing less. As followers of Jesus, our hope has to be built on him. Our God is sovereign. His, his purposes will not be thwarted in this world. And it can, man, it can be hard to hold on to that when we look around sometimes, isn't it? But God's plan and his purposes are being and will be accomplished in this world. And it's not because of us. It's because of him. 
It's because of what he's doing. Um, we'll have the elders come forward. As, as we prepare for communion, as I was working on this sermon, I thought, man, wh- what's a smooth transition from QAnon to communion? <laughs> Just, it's kind of scratching my head there. It's interesting. It's interesting that the messages from Q are often referred to as breadcrumbs. Uh, they're referred to as breadcrumbs because they're, they're cryptic in nature. They, they supposedly guide discerning people along the path to truth. You know, th- there are people in our world who live for the next breadcrumb. There, there just are. Uh, we ought to be people who, who don't long for a breadcrumb from Q to sustain us. We ought to be people who feed on the living bread that has come down from heaven. Was that a smooth enough transition, hopefully? But I just, I just, when I heard that, it's like, man, the irony there is incredible. Jesus is the bread of life. And that's what it comes down to when we, when we eat the, the bread, when we drink the cup, we proclaim his death and his resurrection as our only source of hope and life. Not anything else. That's why there's nothing else on this table. It is just the bread in the cup because Jesus is the only source of hope. We can look a lot of other places, but we won't find it any other places. And so I have faith. I have faith that as we feast upon Jesus and, and his words to us, that, that we will not be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That, that's what Paul longed for with the church in Corinth. I have faith that that will be true of us as we continue to, to feast on Jesus as the bread of life. And so I think it'll, it'll be good for us this morning as we, as we uh, participate in communion to, to be reminded of that, to, to maybe even rededicate ourselves to that, making sure that, uh, that Jesus is our only source of hope, that we put that in him and in him alone. Um, we're, we're using the um, prepackaged elements again, so you will get both bread and juice. So once you get them, just hang on to them, and then we will, uh, we will eat and we will drink together.